Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are getting some information about trade talks between the U.S. and China with U.S. Trump, uh, U.S. Trump administration saying that China is willing to buy more American goods. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Mike McDonough, Chief Economist for Financial Products for Bloomberg LP. Mike, what have we actually learned? What are the facts that are coming out of these trade negotiations that are uh, being heralded as making great progress? Well, um, they're they're basically agreeing that they're going to talk again, which I think was a, a really good baseline scenario, right? They're they're showing some signs that we'll, we're on the same page at least during these talks. Um, there's going to be higher level talks uh, a month ahead. There's there's not anything to really give anyone pause, and I think that that is a welcome based on the results of some of the past talks uh, and and what we heard after them. I think that's a fairly good sign for markets. I don't think anyone thought we'd get a deal following these talks, but I think this is a best case scenario. Who needs a deal more, China or the United States? Uh, that's a good question. So I think, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, growth is slowing in China. Are they more likely to make a deal now? I think more has changed in the U.S. than it has China. I think China's always needed a deal. Uh, but I think the Trump administration needs a deal now more than they did when they first started having these conversations. Uh, and I think that President Trump himself has realized some of the volatility we're seeing in markets now uh, is a result of the uncertainty uh, surrounding trade. Hold on one second. You're saying that, that the U.S. needs a, a deal more now than, than before. Is that because of the stock market volatility entirely? Well, it's it's due to the it, it, stock market volatility in and of itself isn't so meaningful, but it's a symptom of something. And I think in this case, it's a symptom of you had a period of time where, generally speaking, the market's uh, were quite optimistic about the Trump agenda. Uh, you had this return of animal spirits, let's say. And it wasn't just the markets that were optimistic. It was business owners. It was consumers. So you started seeing um, a surpri surprisingly strong hard economic data. Hard economic data had been lagging the survey data. The survey data was off the charts going back to 2017. Hard economic data was disappointing. And then suddenly the hard economic data started catching up with the survey data. This was because you had this blind optimism was back in the market. Uh, all of a sudden, the market had to say, wait a second, um, maybe we, we, we shouldn't have as much optimism. Maybe things aren't as certain. Maybe this China thing could spiral out of control. Uh, and I think that is not only pushing markets down, I think that could risk uh, bringing growth down because you don't have that optimism that's causing people to make decisions that grow the economy. All right. This is a sort of multiple choice uh, question for you, uh, Mike. Uh, Steven Mnuchin, Wilbur Ross, Robert Lighthizer, Peter Navarro. Which one is in charge of trade for the United States? Uh, Donald Trump <laughs> is the answer. Uh, you know, I think I think that's a question that the Chinese themselves are asking. You know, who can they trust? Who can they can? Who can they make a deal with that they will follow through with? And I think, like I said, I do think the bar has come down to the deal that the Trump administration would accept. Um, I think some people might be disappointed when you, when you actually look at what tangibly comes from a deal that is reached. It's not going to be what people thought would have been achieved 
yeah, this is where I wanted to go with this, right? Because there are sort of different aspects here. Are we talking about soybeans or are we talking about intellectual property? Are we talking about tech? Are we talking about the entire relationship between the two biggest economies in the world? And it sounds like that bigger kind of picture is way too big to, to bite off right now. So if there is some kind of trade deal reached by March 1st, it would be okay, you buy a little more soybeans and then we can brush this under the rug for another yeah, couple years. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at a headline right now by our own Andrew Maeda who says, uh, U.S. says China willing to buy more American as trade talks end. Yeah, of course, that's going to be the deal. Uh, they're going to agree to buy more soybean. They're going to agree to buy uh, more automobiles through reducing tariffs. And this is, this is the sort of tangible thing we'll get in the near term. I do think the one area where President Trump has been a bit behind on his agenda has been the opioid epidemic. So if you recall, from the uh, dinner he had with President Xi, there was mention of um, banning or, or somehow disrupting fentanyl exports from China to the U.S. I think that could play a large part in this as well. That'll be something uh, lauded as a win uh, for President Trump on fighting that opioid ep epidemic. So I think you'll have some fentanyl uh, will be a part of this. Soy, agriculture will be a part of it. Cars will be a part of it. Uh, and then some sort of promise, maybe some fringe giveaways on the intellectual property side, the well, business but, side. But Xi Jinping isn't, isn't fighting back against trying to prevent fentanyl shipments to the U.S. That's not the brunt, the brunt of the disagreement here, is it? I mean, this is like peripheral, right? I mean, this hasn't I been mean, part of it. It's Am I wrong? No, I mean, it's peripheral. But at the end of the day, I mean, if you look at the deal that was the new NAFTA, USMCA or whatever the acronym is, if you look at the trade deal that was agreed with the EU, everything like, you know, they, there's basically something that the Trump administration has been able to turn around and claim is a big victory. Uh, even though it was probably a, a very diluted version of what people expected he was att attempting to achieve. It was spun as a big victory. And I think the fentanyl thing is something you would, the Trump administration would be able to spin as a big victory, along with soy, uh, along with autos. And the fentanyl thing is an area, like I said, where the Trump administration has been behind. So that's something he could potentially hang his hat on and, and, and say, look, we've, this is a great deal for America, even if it's not what people thought it would be. Mike McDonough, you spent a lot of time traveling around the world, meeting with various officials and central banks and other types of investors. What is their take on the U.S.-China trade dispute? I think a lot of people are nervous and don't know what to expect. I mean, it's the same question when you ask your multiple choice question, who's in charge? I think a lot of people have that question and, and they're concerned about what the impact of this can be on their economies. Like, for example, uh, in Europe, if the U.S. were to really escalate this trade war, uh, if they were to put more tariffs on Chinese goods, might very cheap Chinese goods start finding their way to Europe as the ECB is trying, you know, and the, the economy is hoping to, you know, start lifting rates, start seeing a bit more inflation. What, what is the impact going to be there? And if that does happen, how do the governments in Europe begin to react? So I guess they're, they're, they're worried a bit about the second order effects and the ramifications for the governments in, in their own countries. Just 30 seconds here. I'm wondering, Mike, do you think that markets are underpricing or overpricing the decline in China's economy? So I think that um, I, I, I may not necessarily have a direct answer for that question, but I will say that oh, come on. Uh, but well, I think they're probably properly pricing in the, the risk for China's economy in the near term because China will do a lot to make sure they maintain that growth rate. Um, you know, the deleveraging agenda was what really 
is weighing on growth at the moment. It really wasn't trade. Trade's now starting to become a factor. Uh, the government, uh, I saw a great tweet. It wasn't by me. Somebody said it looks like China's back on the juice, meaning uh, they're again depending on borrowing to stoke growth. So I think that that makes, in the longer term, that makes China's problem worse. But in the near future, they're, they're able to manage that. So I think that, you know, probably properly pricing risk at the moment. Thanks very much for being with us. Always a pleasure to have you. Mike McDonough, Chief Economist, Financial Products for Bloomberg LP, talking about U.S.-China trade relations. The dollar weakening today against the Canadian loonie. It trades at 132.40. The Japanese yen strengthening. It's at 108.19. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Right now, the U.S. is facing a really uh, problematic profile. We have a deepening deficit here, uh, more debt sales coming up, and investors are showing less appetite to buy the securities. Joining us now to talk about that, Jim Vogel, interest rate strategist for FTN Financial, coming to us from Memphis, Tennessee. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Always love talking with you. There was a story today talking about how demand for U.S. Treasuries as measured to the bid-to-ask ratio has fallen to the lowest levels in a decade. Is this concerning to you? Uh, for the three-year yesterday, um, it was a test of what was happening at the short end of the curve. We'll be paying particular attention to the 10-year that has held up actually better than some of the short sales or the short maturities where the increases have been the largest in terms of Treasury issuance. Yeah, but is it troubling to you? Not yet, no. We saw a very similar decline in the five-year auction at the end of December, and then it rebounded the very next day with an excellent seven-year auction. So people are getting choosier where they want to be in terms of treasuries. So it'll be concerning if they start to choose uh, to stop buying or stop participating uh, across the maturity curve. So, so far, do you view the bid-to-ask ratio as a good measure to indicate investor demand, or should we really just look at price and yield and, and sort of those measures instead? It's an excellent long-term measure. From auction to auction, you also need to take into account the fact that yesterday was the lowest three-year yield at auction in months. And that tends to keep people away as well from an individual auction. But the trend is definitely important. Well, so, Jim, I guess I'm wondering, at what point will bond investors start to push back and say to the U.S., you know, your your government isn't working. It's not even open right now. And we don't even know when, when you know, parts of the government are going to reopen. The debt ceiling is a big question mark. Fitch is actually considering uh, removing the AAA rating from the U.S. as a result of the gridlock. We don't want your debt. At what point are they gonna, the bond vigilantes going to come back? In our calendar for the year, we're looking in particular at the third quarter. Uh, investors have remarkable patience with the U.S. as it goes through uh, some of these fits from time to time. And it, it, the patience tend, generally tends to run thinner after about three to four months. And we're in the second month at this point. Well, at what point then does the investor leave and not come back? We've seen that happen with stocks 
And is it possible that we could see that happen with bonds? Because are they really being compensated for the risk that you described might be out there? Last year, there was sort of a, not a boycott of Treasury bonds, but they were out of favor for nine months. Unfortunately, some of the things that causes problems at the government level then drives investors away from other asset classes and, ironically, back to treasuries. I think we can see that pattern continue, but you cannot count on it. So you have to watch constantly to see just how it's going from quarter to quarter. So there was a story uh, today that President Trump would like to have a trade deal with China in order to boost the U.S. equity markets. Do you think that that would come with a commensurate decline in treasuries? Uh, In terms of price, yes, it would. Meaning higher yields, right? Correct. So how high could yields go on the 10-year, and how much would this go against where the market is positioned right now? Uh, The market is positioned for rates not to go much above 280, so that's a a big warning point in terms of the 10-year. Today's 10-year auction needs to come under 275 in order to maintain that sort of um, 280 threshold level. Uh, If we move past that, I think you could get back to 295. So, but I guess what I'm wondering is if equities do start to rally on some sort of trade agreement, uh, if stocks start to rally on some sort of trade agreement, could you could we get to that point real quick in Treasury yields? I don't think we will get them real quickly because we still have um, an important FOMC meeting at the end of January where the group will speak as a whole as opposed to the individual messages, even though they've come from Chairman Powell. Um, is a, so we need to wait for the, the January meeting before we go too far in terms of selling uh, fixed income investments at this point. What do you make of uh, what has happened or not happened in the high yield market, the lack of interest from investors? Um, that has uh, been serious, but it's kept the, the primary thing that's happened so far is it's kept supply uh, from the market. So in terms of the high-yield bond market as opposed to leveraged loans, we've not seen a lot of growth in that market over the last six months. But is that lack of growth because investors won't buy it? They've already had enough of those bonds, and as a result, it's not because companies don't want to issue it. It's because they know that there's no one going to buy it. The bigger risk is not necessarily in terms of buying new debt. It is refinancing existing debt. And that is, again, something to look very carefully at in the second half of the year. We don't have that many maturities coming up where refinancing is going to be uh, a critical issue for the companies that depend on the high-yield market. All right. Thanks very much for being with us. Jim Vogel is interest rate strategist for FTN Financial, joining us from Memphis, Tennessee. Right now, the 30-year trades uh, just one thirty-second lower at 3.01%, the 10-year at 2.72%. Coming up on Bloomberg Markets, we're going to investigate. Is it better for a company to buy or build in order to grow? You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz.
President Donald Trump en route to the border between the United States and Mexico following a speech from the Oval Office looking for congressional funding for a border wall. Here to tell us more, Ramesh Panuru. He is a senior editor at National Review and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Ramesh, tell us your reaction to the president's speech. Well, I don't think that the president really did a lot to move the needle last night. Um, he, uh, you know, was he laid out his case, um, but he didn't really give any reason for the Democrats to relent and cooperate with him. Um, they know his arguments. They're not persuaded by them. Um, there doesn't seem to be any public opinion data that is really going to push them to give him the wall. Um, they are blaming the government shutdown on the president. The polls suggest most people agree. They're against building a wall. The polls, again, suggest most people agree. So there's just not a lot of reason uh, for them to compromise. And so you're left with a situation where Trump doesn't seem to have a strategy to either win or exit from the shutdown. Ramesh, what do you want to happen with the wall? Well, I think that there is a case for increasing um, the use of physical structures as barriers, maybe not a wall all along the border. I think that's uh, that's unnecessary and unrealistic. Um, but I think, uh, frankly, that there are more important things that we could do to reduce illegal immigration, um, such as putting sanctions on employers who hire illegal immigrants. That, it seems to me, ought to be the focus of people who really want secure borders and immigration control. So, Ramesh, as President Trump harps on the wall and does hold out uh, negotiations or at least a resolution to the partial government shutdown in order to get funding for it, does that reduce your enthusiasm for him as a president? Uh, I think that it is uh, it, it is reducing a lot of people's enthusiasm um, for President Trump. I do think that the way he has conducted himself and the sort of erratic behavior he's shown um, is a mark against his presidency. Um, you know, he first was going ahead with uh, allowing the government to continue to be funded, and then after getting criticized, um, basically turned on a dime and. Uh, decided to shut down the government. He said he was going to take full responsibility for this, and then he has spent the last few weeks doing everything he can to evade responsibility for it. So I don't see how anybody can look at this performance as a whole and say that um, all in all it reflects what a president ought to be doing. Ramesh, there are currently more than 650 miles of actual physical barriers between the United States and Mexico. It stretches through deserts, through towns. It even ends in the sea, in the Pacific. Is there any evidence to suggest that the issue will be solved, the issue of illegal immigration into the United States will actually be solved by a physical barrier? Well, no, I don't think that there is. I mean, for one thing... So then why do uh, this? Well, so... A couple things. First of all, there, as I suggested, there are other things that are higher priorities, ought to be higher priorities for controlling illegal immigration. So something like two-fifths to two-thirds of illegal immigrants in this country are people who came here legally and then overstayed their visas. And obviously a wall isn't going to do anything to stop that. Now, that doesn't mean that there are places where having 
increased structural barriers could reduce illegal immigration. So there are reports, for example, that Yuma, Arizona has has had some success in reducing illegal immigration um, through physical structures. So I, I just think that the problem here is that we we can't sort of be all or nothing about this. And the president, I'm afraid, has tended to make this into the key, the thing that has to be done um, to show seriousness on illegal immigration. Uh, and on the other hand, some of his opponents have made it sound as though you know barriers wall are just sort of never useful, um, and I don't think that's true either. Ramesh, I'm wondering what you're hearing from Republican leaders, because uh, Mitch McConnell has come out, seems to be uh, supporting President Trump, but it has been pretty quiet from a lot of uh, a lot of the Republican representatives. What are your conversations with them like? Well, you don't get the impression that there are a lot of congressional Republicans who think that this is a wise strategy. Um, I think there are a lot of them who are keeping their heads down because they don't want to cross the president um, and because they've just decided, you know, this is this is his thing. He's shouldering the blame for it. And, uh, you know, they don't have another election uh, for a while. Um, but I do think that patience with the shutdown is going to wear thin in less than a month. We're going to have problems with food stamps if the shutdown continues. That's a lot of people. That's more than 40 million Americans. It includes a lot of people who voted for congressional Republicans. It included, includes a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump. Um, at that point, I think uh, that the pressure starts to increase on Republicans to end this. Are there any governors that you have heard on the issue of the wall from the border states of Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, even California? None of them I've heard call specifically for a wall or a barrier in addition to what you know, they already have. I'm not sure what Governor Abbott has been saying, but it's certainly true that people on the border, including uh, including Republicans, have not been um, enthusiastic about this. So Will Hurd is a recently reelected um, Republican uh, from uh, a border district in Texas, and he ran against the wall, and he credits his winning with his opposition to the wall. Um, so the politics of this are are pretty complicated. Going forward, how much does this reduce President Trump's negotiating power on other issues? Well, I think that if you pick a fight and then lose it, um, which is what I think he is on track to doing, um, you emerge weaker on the other end. Um, that said, uh, it's not as though the president has previously had enormous success negotiating with congressional Democrats. So it may not be um, you know, that damaging in the sense that maybe there weren't all that many deals that were possible in the first place. Thank you so much for being with us, Ramesh. We always uh, really appreciate your insights. Ramesh Panuru is senior editor for the National Review, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, coming to us from Washington, D.C. Our topic now is Italy and pledges that were made by Italy's populist government. Well, they seem to have come up against economic reality. Here to help us understand the situation is Ferdinando Giuliano. He is the Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He is also an economic columnist for La Repubblica. Well, Ferdinando, maybe you can explain this turn of events 
when the five-star movement, which is supposed to be part of this revolution when it comes to Italian fiscal stability and governance, seems to have done a U-turn. Tell us the story. Well, that's right. So what we had this week was a pretty amazing uh, decision by the Five Star Movement to essentially pre-commit to bail out a, a bank, a troubled mid-sized lender called the Carige, uh, which really uh, seems to uh, have found it enabled to, uh, sorry, to be not able to uh, uh, find a private solution to uh, strengthen its capital base. And uh, at the moment, one possibility is a bank bailout by the government. Uh, now, the Italian government is made up of uh, the Five Star Movement and the Northern League, two populist parties. Uh, and the Five Star Movement in, in particular over the past few years have been blasting its political opponents, especially of the center-left, for bailing out banks, saying that they only had money for the banks and not for ordinary citizens. And now, when they're in government, well, they seem to have done it themselves. Here's what I'm struggling. If you have a, if you have a government that seems to contradict itself uh, and its pledges so frequently, how can the European Commission negotiate with them as they have about their budget and, uh, and sort of some of the issues that they're dealing with fiscally? Well, that's right. So it's not the first time they break their pledge. Um, remember, Italy's budget, which has just been passed, now targets a 2% budget deficit for next year. Uh, initially, their economic pledges were, were for spending of over $100 billion. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's, the U-turn has been amazing there, too. I mean, in terms of budget, I think the Commission was pretty content to make sure that they uh, faced economic reality. The bond market really turned against them in the autumn, and they had to climb down. And obviously, the Commission caved in a little bit as well. But in the end, they found a compromise, which was more on the side of what Brussels had imagined. And now on the banks, it's still very preliminary. It's, um, uh, at the moment, let's remember, the, the, the government hasn't bailed out any bank yet. It just said it's prepared to do it. And there are questions over whether the European Commission will actually let them do it, uh, because Carriage, after all, is a rather small bank. And uh, the exception to the uh, rule that government should not bail out banks anymore only exists for the bigger banks when there are systemic issues, which do not seem at stake. So I think this battle is one uh, which is still all to be fought and one which is very much worth watching because it could bring to a new uh, fight, as I said, between uh, Italy and the Commission. It wouldn't be the first one. Ferdinando, does it bring a smile to summon the opposition that the bank you're talking about, Carige, Banca Carige, is based in Genoa, which is also the home of Beppe Grillo, who is the sort of face of the, not five-star movement, but of the sort of unnamed movement to reform Italian politics? Well, indeed, you pointed to one of the many contradictions of this story. I mean, uh, yesterday, uh, Twitter was, uh, you know, you had videos playing of five-star movement politicians, uh, you know, vowing that they would never bail out the banks. And, you know, they, saw, they, they looked really quite funny, to be honest. But, uh, uh, yes, the Grillo connection is another one. The, the comedian has been very quiet on this uh, story. Um, and, you know, some say because it's very close to his hometown, very close to his city. 
Uh, but let's remember that Genoa is also a very, uh, you know, at the moment is a, is a very symbolic city in Italy also because of a motorway bridge which collapsed in the summer, uh, killing many uh, drivers. So uh, it's, you know, um, it's, it's a city which has a particular political meaning. And I suspect that's one of the reasons why uh, the government didn't want to uh, let down the bank, as it would be perceived, and is uh, prepared to step in. Uh, so it's an economic story, but with a lot of a political with a strong political dimension as well. Ferdinando, do you think that the issues at Banca Carige and the fact that the Italian government is willing to even make this move indicates much broader stress right now in the Italian financial system that's uh, not being focused on as much for the moment? Well, I think, you know, this is part of a tale of banks which have been suffering for the past uh, five, six years the consequences of Italy's double-deep recession, uh, the 2008 crisis and then the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis. Um, so in a way, you could see this as a legacy of the past, much like Monte dei Paschi di Siena or the two Veneto banks, which were liquidated a year and a half ago. But you're absolutely right. There is stress at the moment for the banking sector. The Italian economy is not doing well. It's part, partly the Euro, Eurozone slowdown, partly some self-inflicted wounds with a collapse of confidence for companies in, in the country, and partly because of what happened to the uh, sovereign debt market uh, in 2018. Uh, big, big jump in yields, and still now you know, they haven't fully normalized yet. Funding costs are going up. Economic activity is slowing. Uh, this, is, I think, is pointing to some trouble ahead, which is certainly not making it easier for uh, uh, banks in difficulty, such as Carigia, to uh, get out of their problems. And who knows, could uh, create some new problems for other banks as well in the future. Having said that, the banking, Italian banking system is certainly in a better shape yeah. than it was just four years ago. Uh, but, you know, as you rightly say, challenges remain. Ferdinando Giuliano, thank you so much for joining us. Ferdinando Giuliano is a Bloomberg opinion columnist focused on European economics, talking about the Italian government and its flipping and flopping. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.